Welcome to Pity Party Over, the podcast for people, teams, and organizations seeking practical ideas for results in greater happiness. I'm your host, Stephen Martini. Let's pause, learn, and move on. Pity Party Over is brought to you by Align, A L Y G N dot company. Hello, everyone. I'm Stephen Martini, and you're listening to PD Party Over, the show where you can listen to the inspirational stories of people to overcome your biggest challenges. Today, we're joined by Sarah Truebridge. She's a consultant, researcher, and author specializing in resilience. Sarah is the founder of Edlinks, an organization whose mission is to educate, support, and sustain a global community by embracing the resilience of humanity. We welcome Sarah Truebridge to PD Party Over. So, Miss Sarah, for those who are going to listen to this episode, would you mind sharing where you grew up? I grew up in upstate New York. A lot of times when you say New York, people think of New York City. But I grew up outside of Albany, the capital of New York. And so it was very suburban. And when you and I met, you talked to me about your upbringing and also how early experiences have inspired you to dedicate your life to others. So were there any special people, any special events that have somehow contributed to the way you are? Yeah. Um, thank you for asking about that, Stephen. It's so funny because people say, where did you get interested in contributing or being of service? My answer to people is I came out of the womb that way. My mother and father, I grew up in a home that dedicated themselves to service. And so it is very cellular to me. So my mom, especially, I would come home and never know who would be in my home because very often my mother would find someone who needs a bed to sleep in at night. Sometimes it would be someone who needs food or needs a meal. So it wasn't something out of the ordinary for me. Like I said, service is ingrained. It's who I am. It's part of my being. What was one of the, one of the biggest bombs that you dropped to your parents growing up? <laughs> Oh my God, shall we start with the A's? We'll go through the alphabet. <laughs> oh my God. One of the later ones was when I was a young adult and I took time off of work to travel the world. I, you know, donned a backpack and traveled world. That didn't surprise anybody in my family. That was normal. That was like, oh, okay. But what did surprise, it took me a while to share this with my family is that I did a lot of hitchhiking. And the hitchhiking that I did was in areas that normally women traveling alone probably don't hitchhike. And so, yeah, that was a bomb. And I don't know. Yeah, I waited quite a while to share that. Why worry? Why have them worry? <laughs> I was um, a good kid. I was very obedient until I reached 18 years old. And out of the blue, I said, hey, I'm gay and I'm going to live with my boyfriend. That was downhill from there. 
I love it. Did your parents accept that? The answer is yes. And my whole life, I've never really experienced any form of discrimination, believe it or not. I mean, I've seen it around myself. Like to give you an example, it has been difficult with the families of former boyfriends. You know, those families were not super accepting or they were half accepting. So I've seen that. But I've always been a firm believer that the biggest probably battle that you combat is within yourself. You have to be okay with yourself. And if you're okay with yourself, that sends a very positive message out there. And so my philosophy approach has always been, this is who I am. I did not decide to be this way. If you have a problem with this, if you want to talk about it, we can, but it's your problem because my problem, so to speak, is I have to live life this way, you know? And with that in mind, that's how I have approached everyone. Well, you know, and it's really beautiful that your parents, that had to come from somewhere. And so I'm sure your parents infused you with a sense of pride and, you know, strength and resilience. It's funny because I often tell this story, which is very interesting. You know, my work is in resilience. You know, that's where my doctorate was. That's a book I wrote about, blah, 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 resilience. I had a fascinating experience where when I first started teaching, my first teaching experience was in a high school teaching English as a second language. These were the days where there were chalkboards. They weren't whiteboards. So that kind of dates me. When I first came in to the classroom, I walked up to the chalkboard and I wrote, you know, the typical, my name, my maiden name was Brownstein. So I wrote on the chalkboard, Miss Brownstein, and I introduced myself, you know, and with that, a young student, young man stood up. He was very tall. He walked into my face and spit right on my face and said, I'm not going to be taught by a Jew. That was my day one on teaching. Day one, first day on the job teaching. I realized I had 28 other students in the classroom. This one student came up, spit on me. And so, you know, what I did was he goes, I'm not going to be taught by a Jew. And first I wiped spit off. And I said, oh, I guess you're not going to be taught by anyone. And then I calmly went over. Those are the days they had intercoms and phones in the classroom. And I went over and I just called the office and I said, someone has to be escorted out of the room. But to my point of discrimination and it comes out of nowhere, right? I mean, and then you think deeper and, well, no, there's always a story, you know, somewhere. But it's how we react in the moment, right? How did you keep your love for teaching after that incident? It's interesting. I haven't thought about this in a while, but when that incident happened, it wasn't about me and it wasn't about the student who did that to me. It was about the other students in the class who 
witnessed that. They were the ones who I had empathy for. Like it was all about them. And I wanted to make sure they were okay with what happened, that they didn't worry about me, you know, I'll be okay. When that incident happened, it didn't turn me away from teaching. It showed me how much I needed to be a teacher. To me, it's not about reading, writing, arithmetic. It's, are you a good person? Do you have a good heart? Is service going to be a part of who you are? That's education to me. It's funny because although I started with high school, I primarily ended up teaching the primary grades, kindergarten, first, second, you know, third. And that's where my niche was with teaching. And it's so funny because every single year at the last day of school, I'd have my little second graders sitting on the rug at my feet, right? And I'd say to them through my tears, I don't want you to remember me as the teacher who taught you reading. I don't want you to remember me as the teacher who taught you math. I want you to remember me as the teacher who taught you how to love yourself and others. That to me is the biggest part of teaching and learning. My elementary school teacher, Miss Lombardi, still lives in the neighborhood where I live. And um, when was it? Like uh, a few years back, I went to see her after many, 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 many years. And she was exactly the way that I remember her. She was not like um, a teacher mom. She was professional. She was very assertive. But you could sense that she was always on your side. But she was demanding. When I saw her, I said, I truly have to tell you that you are very likely one of the most important people of my life because the way that I think, the way that I am, has been so deeply ingrained in me by you, you know? Oh, I love that. You know, it's so funny you should say that because we as teachers don't always know the impact that we have on our students. What you just described, I still get from students. They track me down and they'll say, oh, you have no idea. And I won't. I won't. I'll be like, oh, my gosh, I have a student, for instance, who went into teaching and I have her in kindergarten and first and second grade. I looped with students where you stay with them. Uh, she had a personality. She was a pistol when she was little. And then she's like, I'm a teacher now because of you. So I love that you went back and visited your teacher. And that probably meant the world to her, too. It's a tough job, I think, teaching. You know, I've been teaching for what now? For 13 years. You know, I teach second year college students. And I love teaching. But as you said, very often, you're not quite aware of the impact that you have on people. It did happen a few times that people, actually several times, the students from, you know, years before they reached out through emails, some of them, I met them in person and they share with me how those moments together have impacted their lives, you know, and that's really the, I think the biggest gift that anyone can give you. In the work that I do and in the research, it's so interesting because 
in many ways, the research that I do, I call it duh, duh research, you know, because the research bears out the importance of caring relationships. The research bears out one person can make a difference in your life. What is your definition of resilience after so many years studying it, you know, working with resilience? One of the things, like the most simplest definition that I used to say is bouncing back from adversity. I have changed what I say. Now I say bouncing forward from adversity because I want to express that it's not only, quote, bouncing back, but it's thriving, bouncing forward and thriving. And I think with being a strengths-based practitioner that I am and researcher, bouncing forward is what I want people to think about, the healing process, the bouncing forward. Now, that's the simple definition. Then there's a very formal definition about the external strengths, the systems, the internal strengths that we have within ourselves. So there's a very formal definition that I use. But for the simple definition, I'm sticking with bouncing forward from adversity. And, you know, another interesting thing in the academic world, In the definition of resilience, there are academic researchers who will say that resilience is about bouncing what they say back from significant adversity. I do not use the word significant because I have a strong belief everything is a matter of perspective. Who am I to say what was significant to you? You have your own life story. What's significant to you may not be significant to me. So that's where I sometimes differ from other resilience researchers, where I will recognize adversity being what the individual identifies as adversity. I don't say it has to be every day. It could be something that a daily stress experience. You have to deal with tapping into your resilience. I always say, if you take anything away from when I talk about resilience, I want people to understand it is not a trait. Resilience is a process. It is not a trait. In other words, everyone has the capacity for resilience. It's not a matter of, do you have resilience? It's a matter of what can I do to help support you to tap into your resilience? Because it's in there. And the question is, has it been tapped? And we don't want to say that you have to tap your own resilience. There are so many systemic and environmental factors that are barriers to one's resilience. So we have to look at systemic issues as well. There's the researcher in me, right? 
the one thing that somehow I don't think I've ever read much about is the notion of courage. Based on your infinite knowledge and wisdom, way more than mine, have you ever researched or studied the notion of courage, of being courageous? You know, it's so interesting that you should bring that up because, you know, I just wrote something and in my book, I have a section where I talk about words matter. And when we hear words, a word can elicit a feeling or a behavior and courage. We talk about in resilience, what are some of one's inner strengths that they draw upon to support their resilience. And courage is definitely one of those inner strengths that one draws upon to support one's resilience. It helps to support it and Also, by engaging in your resilience, you develop courage. So it goes both ways. It's not only something you have that supports your resilience, but the resilience can support your courage. I think it's really important for me to encourage others to create and sustain an environment that allows people to be courageous and to stand up for who they are, stand up for others and express their acts of courage, words of courage. If I understood correctly, there is an element of uh, practicing all this. The more that I do it, the more I become resilient, the more I become courageous. So it's something that you have to actively do. Exactly. I love that. It's a process and it's not even linear. You know, we all have experienced times where we can tap into our resilience easier in this time than last time when whatever. So again, it's a very dynamic process. You said the resilience is uh, bouncing forward, and I love that. And so sometimes I look at myself, but I, I see scars. You know, I do see some scars here and there that I drag from the past experiences. And those scars, yes, they are dear to me. They are important experiences, they are memories. So as I look at my scars, what would it be the best attitude to look at scars? The scars, you know, in a resilience framework, It's like multiple scars. They can build up. It's like calcium, you know, when you have a break and it builds up and, you know, the break builds up stronger. So sometimes when something happens, it can strengthen one's resilience because you are able to look back and say, wow, I made it through that experience. And you focus on what did you draw upon that helped you get through that experience as opposed to, oh, poor me, you know, that type of thing. Now, in that same vein of talking about, as you call them, scars, I don't know if I would necessarily use that as the word because, again, I identify as a strengths-based practitioner. 
I recognize trauma. We all have experienced trauma. I am not discounting trauma. But what I like to focus on, part of resilience, the work in resilience is reframing. And I like to reframe words. And so instead of focusing on trauma, I encourage people to focus on healing. Trauma is such a deficit-based word. At the same time, I do not want anyone to misinterpret me in negating trauma. Yes, trauma exists. It's not putting on rose-colored glasses. It's not saying, oh, you'll be fine. It's saying, no, you know what? That sucks. Now, it's validating the trauma, but moving forward towards healing. I have been seeing a therapist for more than a year now. And one of the things that I come to learn through this experience is to, I don't know if it's the right definition, normalize my trauma, which means not to downplay them, not to label them, but to see them as part of life and to create the space to see them and to learn from them, which has been so simple, but so crucial. I love that you're saying that because so often, and I said it before, people think resilience is, oh, everything's going to be dandy, unicorns, cotton candy, and, you know, all the fun, you know, things, and let's be super positive. Well, no, resilience is being able to validate, yeah, you know what, that sucked, or validate you know what? Yep. You have gone through a very difficult time. But you know what? You didn't kill yourself. You're alive. You're here today. What made you wake up the next day? What did you draw upon? And it is dark. It's not forgetting. It's remembering so that you remember and you engage and validate and move forward. You have such a strong energy and you said it, I was born that way. <laughs> How do you preserve your energy, particularly when things may get extra tough? Is there anything you do? I know for one thing, my humor, my humor gets me through a lot. And it has come up in times where I don't even expect my humor to come out. But I know that humor comes out naturally as a way to support my resilience. I was in a really, really, really bad car accident a head-on collision. I was airlifted and they didn't think I was going to make it. And I was airlifted to the hospital. And when I got to the hospital, they put me on the, you know, stainless steel table in the emergency room. And all these doctors came in and huddled. The car was wrecked and I was wrecked. I was a mess. And so 
They have me on this stainless steel table. They start cutting my clothes. They start at the pants, you know, and they start cutting my clothes because I was a wreck. They start cutting my clothes and through the strength that I have, I say, my mother would be so proud of me. I said, I have on good underwear. (laughs) Well, the doctors, they started laughing, but they were saying to me, you've got to stop cracking jokes. You need your energy. You have to stop cracking jokes. And so there I am close to my deathbed and I'm making jokes, you know? I had this thing. I've always had it. When a situation becomes tough, I have to make fun of it. I don't know what it is, you know, but I have to, it's not really downplaying it. It's not that I'm trying to make it into something that it's not, but it's just irreverence that I have. You know, you hear the stories of newsrooms and hospitals and dark humor, you know, that people like just what you said, in order to every day deal with things, how do you deal with trauma day in, day out, day in, day out? Humor does have a role. Last time where you and I met, you talked about something that I kind of resonated with me, which is the the whole notion of the whole child. Would you mind telling me more about it? Here's the thing. The whole child, there's cognitive, physical, social, emotional, and spiritual. Those are the components that we all have. When we recognize all those elements, then we are recognizing the whole person. When I talk about the whole child, it's recognizing all those components in a child. And in education, people are throwing around, just like they're throwing around the word resilience without really understanding it. They're throwing around the term, oh, we recognize the whole child. However, traditionally in education, they recognize the cognitive, physical, and we're getting really good with the social and emotional, but we're petrified of the spiritual because people still equate spiritual with religious. And it's not. It can be, but it's not. We all know the four-year-old that has awe and wonder and curiosity. We know that those should be within us always. But for some reason, we lose that. And I really say that unless we embrace the spiritual aspect of our being and we as educators incorporate that into who we are as teachers and look at that, then if we are not incorporating the spiritual component, then don't tell me you're working with the whole child. Do not be afraid of that component. That component, if you leave it out, you're not recognizing the whole child. 
I do a lot of work and, you know, I'm grateful that the social emotional components have become so prominent and, you know, center stage in education. A lot of times in education, we talk about passion and the heart. It's touching the heart as much as the head. As a matter of fact, I often say the heart is the portal to the head. It's so interesting. So the whole child, I feel the whole child has to recognize the cognitive, physical, social, emotional, and spiritual. You know, that's the head, the heart, the body, and the social and emotional. You know, some people will say, well, isn't social emotional enough? And I say no, because social emotional deals with the outside. It's relational. Spiritual is looking in. And it's recognizing the unity of the globe, the unity of our being, the connections we have with each other, the connection to something greater. As you said, the words can be divisive. You know, they have different meaning to different people. And so, yes, some people may have a different interpretation of what being spiritual means. I really want people to recognize that when we talk about spirituality, we are not talking about religion. And again, that's not to say religion can embrace spirituality, but spirituality does not have to embrace and talk about religion. It's interesting because in my job, this conversation happens you know, all the time. I work often with people with different cultural backgrounds. I never know what word to use. You know, So I do use that word uh, soulfulness, spirituality, spiritual, and I try to emphasize the fact that my approach is very secular. You know, I'm not pinpointing to any specific philosophy and religion. Yeah. I think personally that this movement that we have seen, and I was part of for social emotional learning to get integrated more into education and to become more of a norm. We're on the cusp of doing that with spirituality. We are going to see because it started already, that people are becoming more accepting. And like you said, you know, whether it's soulful, whether it's spirituality, you know, whatever word you use, it's finding that component that is part of who we are that we cannot dismiss. I have one last question, which is to anyone who is thinking, maybe a younger person, of dedicating their lives to servicing other people, to be helpful to other people, either as a teacher, whichever capacity, what would it be an advice that you would give to them? The advice I would give is follow your heart. Listen to you. You know, I have another TED Talk, and in that TED Talk, I mention, you know, People who are older, listen to them. They have wisdom. There are a lot of times people will say, oh, you should do this or, oh, you shouldn't do that. And I say, listen to them. They have wisdom. But at the end of the day, follow your 
heart. That sometimes is the most difficult thing for anyone to do is to take the time to listen. What is it that your heart and soul are saying to you that makes you be the whole person? This is wonderful. Thank you so much for spending time with me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of PD Party Over. Sarah is the founder of Edlinks. Her organization is dedicated to helping individuals from all walks of life unlock their resilience and tap into their full potential. By recognizing the whole person, encompassing the cognitive, physical, social, emotional, and spiritual aspects of our being, Sarah emphasizes the importance of a holistic approach to growth and development. In challenging times, Sarah reminds us of the power of humor. By infusing humor into our lives, we can cultivate resilience and maintain a positive outlook. Sarah encourages us to follow our hearts. When we align our actions with our passions and values, we unlock our true potential and contribute to the oneness of humanity. If you have any questions or comments about this episode, please get in touch with me via email or LinkedIn or sign up for a free live session. You can find all the details in the episode's notes. Please subscribe to the PD Party Over podcast for more insightful conversations. PD Party Over is available on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and many other platforms and apps. I invite you to browse our leadership and managerial development programs at align.company. Align is A-L-Y-G-N dot company. Until next time, be well and thank you for listening.